um, at the end of yes, at the end of uh, last week's show, I went to predict who wins, and then suddenly realised I had absolutely no confidence that United would win two games in a row. You were um, right, and yeah, they did not win two games in a row. But which, which which way did you predict it? Though I, I you got these the, the wrong way round. Yeah, I got it the wrong way round because I don't have any idea what I'm talking about. But I did have a very strong feeling that the kind of idea this would be two kind of breezy results in a row, or like. Just that the young boys game would be a breeze, basically. I, I did have a quite an intense feeling yeah. that it wouldn't be. I mean, uh, the I guess we, we should talk about the young boys game, even though it's a few days ago and, and uh, we've just come off the back of uh, a victory over West Ham. But, but you know, I was confident about the young boys having never seen them play before, simply because of the quality of the Swiss league and where... Uh, Swiss uh, Swiss teams like tend to finish in in European competition, and and honestly, I th- I think young boys will lose the next five games in this group. I, you know, I think they're a very deeply average side that were helped massively by United's um, both defensive errors, the red card, which was definitely a red card, um, but almost more than any of that, United's approach to this, which just went ultra defensive as soon as Juan Bazaka got the red card. Um, and and Solskjaer, from that moment on, you know, and given the substitution he made in pulling off Jadon Sancho, he was always reactive. Every single substitution after that was reactive. Um, and, and I thought a lot of it was on him as a result, which is not an original thought because that's what the internet said afterwards. Um, he has an absolutely terrible record in the Champions League. Eleven defeats in, uh, sorry, seven defeats in eleven, and I, I think I think that seven defeats and four victories in eleven Champions League games. And isn't it two of those victories are over Paris Saint Germain? Um, so, <laughs> it's quite yeah. quite a, a little odd little quirk. I mean, you know, uh, I, there was a lot of talk. I, so I didn't see this game not because of the reasons I actually wouldn't have wanted to watch the game, but um, because it, it, I didn't, when, when I, when we were talking last week, I didn't realize it was a, a 5.45 kickoff. Um, so I was, I was still working. Um, but the, one of the things that I saw a lot of discussion around is that Solskjaer had said, we can't make the same mistakes we made last season against Istanbul. Um, um, and guess what happened? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, like slightly different mistakes, but yeah, but oh yeah, so fair enough. We didn't make the same mistake we made against Istanbul. We invented I mean, a whole new bunch of ones. We, we certainly did, yeah. So, um, young boys. I mean, United scored first, right? I, I, I'm, I've almost wiped this from my memory already. So, um, uh, the uh, Ronaldo scored first, and then. Uh, young boys opening the, like equaliser. Their first goal came from United leaving space down the left hand side. You know, and it, it's one of the few. And it, like Sosha said, we were a bit lazy getting to them. And whether it's one of the defensive midfielders was caught out not covering Luke Shaw's run, or Luke Shaw had got himself out of position. You know, which is rare, rare these days. Yeah. Either way, United were not in position to stop that ball coming in. Um, and that's uh, you know that's what caused a problem there. And then obviously it's a catastrophic error for uh, the winner from Jesse Lingard, who I think you know, like he fessed up about that. He was quite open, said uh, it'd been a difficult week and he made a terrible mistake, and he got on socials and and said that, which you know can happen. He's you know, a footballer, found himself in 
the wrong position on the pitch um, for him, uh, which might well have been Fred's position. Uh, as I said earlier, Solskjaer was being reactive constantly. United couldn't keep the ball, so Fred was yanked off with two minutes to go and Martial put on, presumably to try and keep the ball a bit further up the pitch. Um, and who found himself in central midfield? Jesse Lingard, you know. So um, it's yeah, that was a disaster as well. And, and obviously the red card was you know, a, a pretty terrible mistake from Wan Pazaka. It's unusual for him to get caught out like that, but you know he does like a lunge, doesn't he, uh, when tackling? And normally he's very accurate with it. Um, but most of it, most of it was this was all about Solskjaer absolutely panicking after United got that red card. I mean, it took about 30 seconds for him to bring on Dallo for, for Sancho. And then he just kept making defensive substitutions and United just got deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And, you know, it almost didn't matter at that point how poor the quality of the opposition were relative to United's ball-playing ability. We've just camped outside our own box. Yeah, so the, the, one of the things that I wanted to hear your take on it is I heard a lot of praise for, um, in various different places, for Young Boys' press in that game. And they pressed United really effectively and really capitalised on the um, the man shortage through a kind of very press and progressive kind of approach to the game. Does that sound fair? Is that is that right? Yeah, they they did press. I mean, as you'd expect from a David Wagner side, right? Um, that's you know he's he's of that school, uh, and that did cause United some problems. And and you know obviously United started the game without Rafael Varane in there, who's who's sort of simple uh, but very effective passing. I think helps United beat the press a little bit. Um, and you know, sure that that caused some problems. I mean, that was correct in the second half when United went to back three slash five. Um, just leaving Ronaldo up front on his own, but it caused other problems, right? Within, the, yeah, United couldn't keep the ball at that point. Um, so, sure, um, young boys press, but that's you know, it's kind of what you'd expect of a you know limited quality side. How do you try and even things up against a, a side with better quality on the ball? You press hard, you work hard. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's um, that's it's the right philosophy, I think. Uh, and they got it right. David Wagner got it right. And you know, I'm I'm, I'm going to you know I can give I'm going to give Ollie some more praise for United, in United's victory over West Ham. But I thought so much of this was on him, and the message he sent both his substitutions, you know, um, and and you know how he wanted United to play in that second half was very very negative. There's a small subplot which is developing, and I, I think he's going to be quite significant, which is his handling of Sancho in general. Because if Mourinho was handling Sancho like uh, Ole is, would be raising some eyebrows, I think. And Sancho's looking ropey, like he's looking sh- really short of confidence. Um, and it was interesting that he was the the player left out uh, against West Ham, and he was the player taken off at halftime. And you know he's got a selection issue, no question. He's got a selection issue. I'm not. I'm not saying he should have played, and so and so shouldn't have played again because. It's either Greenwood or Pogba, both of whom should have played against West Ham. So th- there's a problem there. But um, but it's interesting that Sancho was the, the player that he chose to take off. Um, as the, I think they were talking about this on Stadio as well, which is like you kind of want Sancho in the side if you're going to be sitting deep and counter counter punching. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I thought there were other other choices that could have been made, um, both in that substitution. 
Uh, and later in the game, where you know more defensive midfielders came on, um, and United had no out. I mean, Ronaldo was up there on his own for uh, for much of that game, and and it just caused a problem. I mean, of course, he yanked Ronaldo off in the end as well um, in in trying to react to to everything that was happening in that match. So, um, you know. You don't just want Ronaldo up there on his own, right? Like Ronaldo is an incredible player and everything. Um, and as as you said last week, his attacking movement is fine, but he's gonna be isolated if you leave him as a kind of lone front man with no no supporting attacking cast. Yeah, um, and and then when they took him off, it wasn't to bring on a different front man who who might be able to hold it up better. I mean, not that Edson Cavani sort of in, was in the squad; he's injured at the moment. But it was for Jesse Lingard, and United played with no forward, you know, for yeah. the next twenty minutes. What yeah. do you expect is going to happen in that situation? And this is this is the thing about um, going really defensive in these situations; it just doesn't work. I, I mean, this is totally anecdotal. And it might well be a kind of cognitive bias around the frustration that happens in these situations as you kind of remember them more clearly. But it feels to me like almost every time a manager tries to shore up a fragile lead, it ends up conceding either the, well, often the game, but always the momentum. And then conceding the momentum often leads to conceding the game. Yeah, and I think that's that's what happened in this situation Um and and United now find themselves um, a defeat down already in a group that, like, I don't think we can take for granted. Uh, Not Atalanta, even close. Atalanta, I know we were kind of happy with the draw overall because you know none of the Europe's really big names. But you've got Villarreal, who, uh, if you don't you know remember, <laughs> gave us quite a difficult game in the Europa League final. And Atalanta, who've been, um, you know, one of the sort of more innovative interesting to watch and attacking sides in European competition the last few years, you know. So um, you'd think, you know, on paper, man for man, United have more quality, but like it just, it doesn't count for enough unless you get everything else right as well. So a defeat defeat down could could be really critical. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Because in theory, this will be three points that most teams in this group don't lose. I mean, that, you know, we'll see. Maybe, maybe young boys will, Surprise, Villarreal or Atlanta. I mean, obviously, the draw between those two sides was a good result for United. But yeah, um, yeah, a long way to go in that group. And just from a totally personal perspective, which is maybe a little harsh having not seen the game, but everything I've heard about this game sounds like, yep, this is these are all the things that are the problem. You know, I said after the Europa League final, uh, Solskjaer was a rabbit in the headlights in that game. Like it, it was really clear that he completely froze. And it's hard not to think that there was the occasion and the, the the kind of relative inexperience as a manager under that level of pressure um, that was one of the reasons that he froze, uh, especially given he does have a kind of tendency towards being not proactive enough um, off the off the bench. So this feels a little bit like. I, I, what I was saying at the time was I really hope he learns from that. I really hope he's he's kind of humble enough to to see it as a kind of growth area for him. Um, but it really sounds like this one was sort of similar in a way. There's a kind of blink, a blinking at the wrong moment kind of approach. Yeah, 
Um, anyway, I mean, and, and I think like the, most of the substitutions were a, a significant downgrade in quality as well. Um, so because he did actually make some in this one, which which he uh, hasn't done always, right? That Europa League final being still fresh in the memory. Anyway, look, he he can get, take some praise for the fact that United's winner was scored by a substitute against West Ham. Jesse Lingard and the assist, although you know, it's doing some heavy lifting here, was from Nemanja Matic. <laughs> Don't yeah, I just I obviously kicked off. Uh, why is he bringing on Matic? What's the difference that going to make? Oh, okay, right, right, fine. He's passed the ball. That's uh, you know, and yeah. Fred might Fred might well not have made that pass. No, um, he might he might not have done. I mean, Fred did have a stinker of a second half, didn't he? He was um, really good off the ball, as always. Like Fred, just the, the amount of energy he gives that midfield. It's like there was there was a moment in the first half where he just gave away a really sloppy pass, and then just did brilliantly defensively to kind of make sure he didn't leave a hole behind him, and you know all that stuff. Yeah, was, I mean, I I think it's going to be a pattern though this season. Like West Ham's game plan was clearly to let United have a lot of possession. I mean, United had six hundred and fifty odd passes in this game, eight hundred touches. You know, it's a lot of ball. Uh, and then break fast, knowing that for all the work that McTominay and Fred do, I don't think defensively they're that sound. They're just not. I mean, United were under a lot of pressure. Didn't help that Harry Maguire um, decided to just give the ball back to West Ham every time he got it. <laughs> it this is this is the thing. It wasn't like it didn't feel, you, you know... Um, United didn't feel systemically open in this game. It felt like there was a lot of player error leading to the moments that were were very open. Yeah, I mean, what, first 10 minutes or so, West Ham had a couple of good chances, one where Maguire was robbed and and Bowen shot pretty weakly off his left foot um, at the near post, and then another where Bowen had an opportunity from further out and, and sort of scuffed it. Um, but... You know, well, we said ahead of time that United are going to lose the midfield battle in this game. So this is almost like you wouldn't, you, you know, against against Rice and uh, Suchek. I want to say Kufal then. That is a... That's, what year did he play in? Anyway. Um, uh, He's West Ham's right back. Oh, OK. There you go. Was it an old player called Kufal? Anyway. Um, There's a Cafu. I mean, it's close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he's. We knew they were going to lose that midfield battle, um, but they managed to create a hatful of really high-quality chances United in this game, didn't they? Yeah, and, and I don't think they lost the midfield battle until sort of later stages of the game. You know, that second half, last 20 minutes, West Ham started to become dominant. And, and whether that's partly because Fred had that stinker and McTominay can't be that fit. Uh, he's had a month out or so. Um, which which is the point I wanted to make about Sancho as well. He, he didn't have a pre-season, so I'm going to give him some slack. Um if he's still stinking it up in January, then then we can, you know. I'm, but, I'm not. I'm not. There's no part of what I'm saying which is intended to be a criticism of Sancho. Because no, not not even slightly. Like I, I can't think of a player I'd rather United have had signed this summer. Like I'm so excited to see what happens, but it's not going well. It hasn't started well. You know, no. it's, a, it's all a bit Mkhitaryan at the moment. <laughs> yeah, he's he's got more quality than that. Let's not jinx him. Anyway, so, um, I mean, I, I think it took a while for West Ham to, to you know, exert some midfield dominance. They what, what A part of what caused United problems defensively, you know, partly 
you know the way United's double pivot was structured, but also you know they had Vlasic and Benrahma sort of floating around a lot in the half spaces, and I don't yeah. think United really worked out who was who was you know which of the centre backs was coming out to get them or which of the the pivot was going to kind of cover that half space, and it did cause United problems. And look, like West Ham are a good side, you know, yeah. not great but good. Um, and uh, you know they're not necessarily playing in a David Moyes fashion of getting it out wide and putting a cross in for the big man. No, he's uh, he, I, and I think Moyes deserves a good amount of credit for what he's doing. Sorry, these words are just turning to ash in my mouth. Um, no, no, they do. I think Moyes deserves a good amount of credit for what I mean. He's getting a good amount of credit, but but what he's doing at West Ham and how unMoyesian it is. This is, you know, this is a manager that seems to have kind of looked at himself and is is seeing his squad and looking at where the strengths are and really playing to those strengths. Um, and that's, you know, uh, yeah, that, that's evident. Now, one of the things, you know, the second up, the first half of the second half, you know, it could not have been more on top of this game. Um, right. I thought it was interesting that, that it wasn't like when, when West Ham scored, because obviously they scored first and it was a very, very fluky goal. Oh, goodness knows what the post shot XG on this would be, but basically you <laughs> needed it to bump into Rafa Varane um, to, uh, to go in. Um, has it gone down as a Varane own goal or has Ben Rama got the, got the fantasy league points? I, I don't know, actually. I haven't, yeah. um, haven't checked that one. No. Um, it, I, I think at the time it went down as a Ben Rama goal it's still showing as Ben Rama so oh, there I, think, you go. I think that's it um so it he's but the thing is it wasn't undeserved for West Ham to score I'm not saying they deserved to be in the lead because I think it wouldn't have been at all undeserved had United scored by that point in the game um the uh but but West Ham had had chances already by that point yeah of course Ronaldo scored immediately after going United went behind again. So I, I mean he's like Thanos inevitable isn't he? Yeah. Um but praise for Bruno for the outstanding Oof. pass over the top took the entire West Ham defence out. Uh, and a good attempt at a finish from Ronaldo and then and then knocked it in. Of course that robs Bruno of the assist which he oh, rightly no. should have. <laughs> yeah yeah because it's a oh. uh, second phase isn't it? Uh, of um, course. And also juices uh, Ronaldo's XG, although, you know, it's not really in his favour because it all adds up to about 1.2 XG for that goal. <laughs> um, yeah, his his performance on that goal was worth more than one goal uh, on across the course of a season. Work that one out, stats nerds. Yeah. Um, one uh, talk of praise uh, McTominay had played an absolutely beautiful ball to Ronaldo a few seconds before that which um, he had done quite a poor job of controlling his first touch had slightly let him down and um, then he cut back inside and I mean but Ronaldo was he, he was excellent in this game he was extremely busy it was hilarious to see him acting like a petulant four-year-old when he was not given I mean it's been a long time since we've seen that in the United shirt but it hasn't hit I mean he's he's had years and years and years to grow up and he has not <laughs> succeeded in doing it in the slightest has he i, I mean uh look we've had we've had plenty of uh, opportunities to to view him at real madrid and juve over the years as well and uh, he's never lost any of the sulking flappiness <laughs> so uh, it is an essential essential part of ronaldo his game has changed over the years he's now a very much a fox in the box but um yeah he likes flapping yeah look, he had he had a good game um it, you know the movement's important he's he's not 
a number nine in that he's not going to play with his back what? to goal and hold it up. He's not going to play with his back to goal and hold it up, right? And he is doesn't that what do a it. number nine is? Oh, like, okay. <laughs> he's old-fashioned, you know. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. kind of, he's not that. He needs players around him to sure. be effective, um, for sure. He's not Romelu Lukaku, you know. No. It plays a different role for United. Um, so, you know, if, if United are not busy around him and not moving the ball quickly... It looks a bit static, and there were times during this game, then, especially the first half, it looked a bit static. I thought after West Ham scored, United were much, you know, much more movement, more more intensity, moving the ball a bit quicker because there's plenty of players in this United side who can do that. Um, and then, you know, as the game sort of changed in the second half, um, Oli made a couple of substitutions, pulled. Well, I thought we battered them for the beginning of the second half, by the way. Like, I thought it looked absolutely inevitable that we'd score. I think it was in the first half that Bruno hit the post, wasn't it? But, um, but the, just that there's just wave after wave of United attacks and very high quality attacking players. You thought it, it looked like we were going to win at that point. But yes, yes. The course- pattern definitely changed, though. I mean, I, like, fully, I totally agree. I, you know, from the point of the West Ham goal onwards, United were very good. Uh, and moving it quicker and doing the things that United should do to win these kind of games. Then Oli, I mean, it's a kind of interesting double substitution, really. Jesse and Sancho on for um, Greenwood and Pogba. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, um, it's it's as we said earlier, the substitutions have worked in Oli's favour today. Yeah. Don't, don't always. Um but um, it's it's Jesse who scores the winner late in the game. Well, I can't remember what minute now. It's like, but pretty it's deep really into late. the game. Yeah, yeah. Um, from Matic's pass, another substitute. And I, I thought Sancho did all right for his twenty minutes. You know, he's looking to get on the ball and run. You know, it's not. We haven't seen much from him yet. I don't think he's got an assist or a or a goal, has he? Yeah, well, definitely not the goal. Um, no, so, and- but it's coming. It's coming from him. Uh, the um, the goal, the Lingard goal. I mean, that is an absolute blinder. Oh, it's it's it's, it's a stunning goal. I mean, to to get create the space to start with and be that direct and confident. Yeah, uh, which we wouldn't have seen from Lingard a year ago. Nope, for sure. Um, and then thanks, West Ham. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, he stuck it right in the top bins. I mean, it's a it's a wonder strike. Yeah, I, I mean, he, so he was serenaded by the West Ham fans uh, when he when he came out because, of course, they wouldn't have like maybe they'd one game at the end of the season with fans, but they, he would have just played in empty stadiums pretty much the whole time. So it's their first chance to show their appreciation of it and him. And I, I thought it was quite nice that they did it to such an extent. I thought it was funny when they sang Jesse Lingard is one of our own. I thought that was it's quite a nice, nice little jokey chant and he tried not to celebrate but Scott McTominay was absolutely refusing to let him not celebrate I yeah think- I, I, I'm, I'm with Scott on this one because like he's he's been at United since he was seven right he had I- six months trying to you know re- recover as a as a player at West Ham you know there's no need for respect no, but I, I mean I think that he, he should have gone full Paul Ince and gone <laughs> mental that's what he should have done the, the thing is like 
he was literally cheered by their supporters while he was warming up. Like he's not like how could how horrible would it be of him? I know it was a short period of time, but it was you know it it clearly meant something to the supporters and it clearly meant something to him as well. Like that'd be really high levels of cynicism, Scott McTominay levels of cynicism to uh, to to celebrate wildly for for any of us who had to suffer through. Uh, I know where this is going to be. You know where this is going. I had to suffer through West Ham robbing us of the title in the mid-90s, <laughs> early 90s. Yeah, it's going there, and as it should do. I forgot. I'm sorry. I forgot it was West Ham. It, I, honestly, Look, there's a reason to hate almost every every single one of the teams in the Premier League, and, and I'm going to find those reasons. Yeah, but it feels to me like West Ham are fourth on your list right now they'd be fourth in the in your uh, i don't know about that don't know about that but no? uh, anyway 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 liverpool city leads gotta hate three. all of those yeah yeah who who else is above west ham for you in teams well, you you... i mean just like i mean it, well 15 years ago i might have said arsenal uh but <laughs> oh, yeah, now, of course, yeah. Yeah. now yeah, about well, them. whatever mm. i mean there's a lot of reasons to hate chelsea you know Plastic supporters, sure, right? Plastic flags and their one song and their plastic owner. So, <laughs> excellent. It's, it's very grown-up football, isn't it? It's very, yeah, yeah, no. like, <laughs> yeah, it's entirely sensible and emotionally rational thing to do with your time and energy. Um, uh, yeah. So the uh, after that, we're thinking jobs are good and well done, Man United. You're going to win this game. It's deserved on balance. Uh, there's there was one penalty shout earlier, which was just clearly nowhere near a penalty. And then there was there was. Well, you know, which ones are you talking about here? Let's, let's have a discussion about these rather than just so gloss over them. The one where Ronaldo deliberately runs into and jumps over the West Ham defender, that one. You see, I'd, I'd, I mean, like, that's obviously the ref didn't give it and VAR's not going to overturn uh, unless it's a very, very high bar. That's basically... The, it, I, I call it the Bruno rule because uh, this rule was brought in specifically because Klopp and Lampard and a few others complained about how many penalties United were getting with players who run at defenders and get penalties. Uh-huh. So now those aren't going to be given as penalties anymore. Uh, because Klopp complained. Because this one uh, wasn't a penalty even slightly. <laughs> this one, well, look, um, every single season before this season, that would have been given. And uh, and we can roll it all the way back to, like, I don't know, let's just an example, the 1990 quarterfinal uh, of the World Cup where Gary Lineker got two of those in the same game. Um, you know, the leg's hanging out there and there is contact. I, I'm just, like, just contrast this to... The penalty that's given against Luke Shaw, because you know, in the in the uh, in the WhatsApp group, you're like 100. percent That's a pen. Yeah, right. Luke Shaw's oh, the, hand the, is just by the rules. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. Luke I, Shaw's I mean, hand no. is just like kind of hanging out there. Uh, the defender, I think, it's Kufal's leg is just hanging out there. You know, yeah. what's the difference, honestly? Um, well, just just with the one, rules. there's leeway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but but like the Premier League and Premier League match officials, whatever. I always forget what the acronym is have just arbitrarily changed Law 12, right, to interpret a foul completely differently when it's in the penalty area for the purposes of VAR. If that's outside the penalty area, that's going to be given every single time. Yeah, so... uh, And then the bar is very, very high that basically VAR is not going to overturn 
anything, I think. And short of someone pulling a gun out and shooting the attacker, and honestly, if it's Ronaldo, he's going to be on reputation. He's not going to get that. So, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's it swung a very, very long way to the point that VAR might just be for offsides and then for saying to the referee, hey, maybe you want to take... Maybe you want to take another look at it. I don't think VAR's going to give the handballs either. They're going to well, it did prompt it did the they're going to prompt the referee to go review it, oh, which is I what happened what today. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but but that that is effectively them giving it because. So the reason that I said it's a hundred percent a pen is not like oh yes, great, it's a hundred percent a pen. This is what I think football should be. It was like there's no chance whatsoever that once this goes to VAR, it's not going to be the decision isn't going to end up being penalty because yes. I mean we had this. Yeah, we had this discussion against Leeds. I was talking about how stupid the rule is. And, you know, this is this is a classic, absolutely stupid penalty. That's where his arm is meant to be. Like, he's, he he actually tried to move his arm slightly away from the ball. He, he you know, he could, it was a penalty. There's, I'm not saying it shouldn't, under every law that exists in the or the, in all the interpretation, that's definitely a penalty. The, the first Ronaldo, I thought the Zuma one on Ronaldo, where he got clattered, and I guess you could say he wasn't fully in control of the ball, like the ball was beyond him at that point. But like to me, that was, I don't really understand why that wasn't overturned and given as a penalty, or at least get the ref to go and have a look at it. Well, I mean, look, like, for sure. I mean, he's anticipating a foul, but he's absolutely smashed by Zuma. But contrast it to Kyle Walker, where it went to VAR, VAR looked at it, you know, City versus Southampton. He's absolutely taken out the Southampton attacker, nowhere near the ball. He's the last man, and VAR looks at it and goes, no, that's all right. I mean, I have to say, I'm extremely uncomfortable in general with the kind of, like, uh, Brexit-era oh, come on, let's let them kick each other a bit again because now we're going to bring back pounds and ounces or whatever. Like, it does feel a bit... It feels like, it all feels a bit, like, sociological. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is what Britain is... They're trying to sing songs at schools about how great Britain is and not teach about the excesses of like, the violent and dangerous British Empire, you know, the oppressive and disgrace anyway you know this country has <laughs> i'm no wondering sh- where this rant is going <laughs> well basically what i'm saying is brexit is the reason like not 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 the existence of brexit is not the reason but the cultural mores around brexit are playing directly into them going oh just get up it doesn't hurt that much <laughs> maybe maybe um uh, i i just don't think they like united getting penalties so this is yeah the each year, Premier League match officials goes to all the managers and the captains and has a conversation. They ask what they'd like to see out of, you know, the style of refereeing. And this year, they said, They've gone. right, lads, leave <laughs> means leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, we, we're not going to make any decisions. Anyway, like, you know, my complaint there is not really, oh, look, they're in favour of City and they're against United. It's just like, like that's desperately inconsistent. De- yeah. Desperately, and and VAR is supposed to even all of that out, um, yeah. and and there's two examples there where it just doesn't make any sense. And then, so I mean, West Ham got a penalty. It 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 in inverted, in very heavy inverted commas. It absolutely was a penalty based on the the way that football is now. 
which is bad. I think it was it was the Chelsea one. It was the Reese James one. We talked about it for ages on the backers content. So if people don't know why I'm referring to it as if we've talked about this before, that that was that was the one I was talking about. Because right. you were like, this is just a penalty. And I was like, how is it a penalty? It doesn't look like a penalty. It's not a penalty. And it was a penalty. Um, and this one, so having... Uh, Having learned the law from you, I was like, okay, well, there's, there's the, he, the referee just has to look a still at a still of this. It's hit Luke Shaw's hand, basically as outstretched as it can be. That's going to be a penalty. And then Moisey brought Mark Noble on, and David De Gea saved his first penalty in forty attempts. Well done, Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, if you if you get the chance, go look on the internet. It was going around United's team sheet. Uh, for the last time Dave saved a penalty is very interesting. <laughs> really? What was it, roughly? <laughs> oh, God, I can't remember now. Yeah, I, I knew you were going to ask me that. But, Sorry. Uh, yeah, anyway, it, it's a long time ago. Right. 40 matches ago. Um, and, yeah, interesting, like, Moisey bringing special teams on. I mean, of course, like, the the pundit Arati uh, were straight on saying you can never do that. I mean, there's plenty of sports where where you come in cold and you have to... You have to perform. I mean, not least, um, and you know, this is not an original thought either. You know, NFL special teams when you come on to kick the extra point. Um, so you know, it's or or I don't know. In 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 T Twenty cricket, you don't really get uh, too many balls to be hanging around before you expect it to hit it into the stand. So um, it's perfectly possible for an elite sports person with a very good penalty record, Mark Noble has to to put a penalty away. He didn't. He put it in a nice area for Dave, let's say. That's, I think that's like a 60% penalty, isn't it, of a, like in that sort of area um, on stats rather than a 90-odd. You stick it in the top bins and uh, Dave actually managed to leap like a salmon and push it away. And he was very happy about it as well, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, it, it's huge, right? It was a, it's a, that's a really big... Um It's a really big moment uh, potentially in the season. You know. Yeah, one for his confidence. So, you know, he managed to dive the wrong way for 11 penalties in the Europa League final. I'm exaggerating, <laughs> but I might not be. <laughs> and, um, uh, uh, yeah, and people are obviously talking about it and good for him. And, and look, you know, was, he's from his elite levels, he's obviously declined um, to the point where he lost his position last season. Uh, and he's won it back because Dean Henderson had first a hip injury and then got covid and has got long covid and it's you know taking me a very long time to recover um and well right now you'd say that there's you know it's his it's his and henderson's gonna have to do an awful lot to take it off him or dave's gonna have to um start throwing them in his own net again which he might still do but this would be good for him yeah i mean he might do but that you know the other possibility is that he's recovered from the yips um which is yeah you know that's that's absolutely possible and that would be i mean you're talking about i mean presumably he's quite happy to be playing behind maguire and varan that's the best central defensive partnership he's ever played behind at united and maybe maybe had absolute like dying era Vidic and Ferdinand oh no he had, he had a couple of years of Vidic and Ferdinand so you know but yeah they, they were they were to be fair hobbling through injuries at that point <laughs> yeah um and I, I I would love to know how many times he played behind both of them I bet it's not that much probably um, not uh but you know this is a massive upgrade on everything he's had in front of him for quite some time um and 
so he's he's in he's been in really good form this season. Re- he's been in really good form this season. Yeah. And so that's a that's great that he saved it. You know, between him getting some redemption for the Villarreal penalties situation and Jesse Lingard, I mean, I obviously there's that thing of having not seen the young boys game. I've obviously heard about what happened with Lingard, but it's not fresh in my mind because I didn't see it. For Lingard, the last thing he did on a football pitch was like basically give a game away for United. So for him to kind of immediately come back and uh, and make such a massive contribution with such an incredibly high quality moment, I mean that's that must be a huge deal for him. I'm sure. I don't know how much of a role he's going to play for United this season. He's obviously higher in the pecking order than Donny, like now. Uh, and he played, right? He started against Young Boys. He did, and then was pulled off by uh, by Solskjaer. So, um, you know, nothing the guy can do right. I just, I, yeah. Anyway, um, so so it's it's a great story for for Lingard. We know he can do that. Uh, I, I think his quality on the ball is kind of limited, but making those third man runs, like the quality of his finishing, it, it's all very good. You know, yeah. All, as we saw with his six months at West Ham last season, his quality with the ball at his feet, you know, like um, if he's running on the ball, is is a very high level of, you know, it's it's his kind of passing range. I'd say is like the one weak link in his number ten play all round, isn't it? But yeah, yeah, no, I mean it certainly is, yeah. Uh, but yeah, good for him. Donny, yeah. on the other hand, uh, yeah. boy, he's going to have to hope for a favourable Carling Cup draw, isn't he? Or whatever it's called these days. Carabao Cup. Carabao Cup. So let's transition out of uh, talking about West Ham and the Carabao Cup to talking about West Ham in the Carabao Cup, shall we? Yeah. Um, uh, what, what, what is there to say about this? Let's let's play guess the United Eleven. First name on the team sheet, Bruno Fernandes. No, no, Ronaldo. Ronaldo's first name on the team sheets. Second name on... I think actually Ronaldo might accept not playing in the... Uh, in do you the think? Cup. Do you I think? Know, I, mean, I mean, Harry, Harry Maguire and Bruno are playing, aren't they? I mean, because yeah. they play every every single game. So yeah, uh, be interesting to see if he gives Rafael Varane another week off, and whether Lindelof comes in. Uh, Dallo might play, uh, given that he's going to have a couple of European games coming up after, or at least one European game coming up after when Bazaka's red cards. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say Alex Tellez play. Alex Tellez on the bench today. Can't remember. Um, I, I can't remember. I forgot. I, th- about, I mean, I'm pretty sure he's. Him. I'm pretty sure he's training again, so we might see him. I don't know if it's like a function of ageing, but I'm finding it increasingly difficult to remember everyone in United squad. I don't think it's a function of ageing, actually, because I take like oil supplements and stuff. Do you know what I mean? My brain's sharp. We're sharp, bro. Um, yeah, I think yeah, yeah. it's that. You just social... keep telling yourself that. Yeah, yeah. that's what I'm going to keep telling myself. Um, the I think it's just Solskjaer's squad management is so bad. It's really easy to forget everyone except the first 11 because no one ever plays. <sighs> So, like, who who else? I mean, if, if Tellez is fit, I think he's probably going to get a game. Um, we might see McTominay again, if depending on reaction from this game, because he needs minutes. Maybe not. Um, and presumably, Van der Beek may get a game. Juan Mata was on the bench today. Oh yeah, For, forget he exists. So he yeah. might play. I don't know how close Edison Cavani is. He's been training, so um, he presumably could come into contention. And so could Jadon Sancho, who's you know not started or or got got uh, what uh, 50 minutes over the last two games so you know 
Rashford's been lots of pictures of Rashford in training. Yeah, well. don't, I'm don't sure think he's, he's not ready. I but. don't think he's ready. They said October. Yeah, and Eric Bailly was on the bench today, so he maybe he comes in. Maybe both. I don't know. Maguire plays every game, so it could <laughs> no. be one of Lindelof or, or Bailly. Both. Let's go full chaos. Just get Eric Bailly on that pitch. Whatever you have to do to get Eric Bailly into that team, do it. And in goal, be interesting because Sosha said uh, Henderson's going to play some under-23s football before he's ready. Um, Tom Heaton has been first choice uh, reserve to date. So he could, he probably will play, won't he? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you might as well. Why not? Um, Yeah. And and, uh, like on the bench... For the keeper, I don't know whether it'd be De Gea or um, Lee Kofar. Grant. Uh, Lee Grant's basically just coaching these days. I don't know whether he's even playing. So, right. Um, so it could be Kovar, but yeah, who knows? Um, the the one of the interesting things is what West Ham are going to do. I wonder if they'll play a really second string side. I think you'd imagine that they would. Although, oh yeah, of course they will because of Europe. They they probably got quite decent ambitions in that tournament. Um, they should have decent ambitions in in that in that tournament in the Europa League. Yeah. yeah. So oh they they're in the Europa League. Of course they are. Yeah, they're they in are. the Europa yeah. League and Tottenham are in the conference. Yeah. That's funny. That's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag um, thank you, Jose. That's right. Well, they won, didn't they? West Ham on Thursday. Yeah, they did. So and um, yeah. So I'm sure it will be a real second string. West Ham side, um, I, I, it's going to be a tough watch. That's my one prediction about this game. It's probably not going to be a very high quality football match. Um, then we play. So that's enough about the Carabao Cup because honestly, I know Solskjaer needs silverware or whatever, but it's not like the Carabao Cup saving his job. Does, does it, it? Does it rank ahead of the Conference League in terms of uh, like quality of competition, or that we care about it? I mean, Manchester City care about it because they've won it for the last 18 years in a row or something. Yeah, they, they, that's that's a squad size flex, isn't it? The Carabao Cup, basically. I'm a bit yeah. disappointed with myself that I just think of it as the Carabao Cup now. Like Sponsorship branding really works. I had never heard of that product until they started naming this tournament. Now you are chugging energy drinks, <laughs> double fisting them. <laughs> Yeah, this podcast is brought to you by the good people at Carabao. No, don't drink Carabao, whatever you do. Like, energy drinks are just humans. Should They're called energy drinks. They should be <laughs> called stimulant drinks. Yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> That's what yes. they are. Anyway. It, it, it is not energy. Yeah, the sugar-free, zero-calorie energy, energy drink. drink. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, pump yeah, yourself full of... Coke. I mean, I have to say, I, I, I'm, you know, I love a cup of coffee, um, so I, I can't really talk about addiction to caffeine. Uh-huh. Although pumping yourself full, full of a couple hundred milligrams plus the taurine will, yeah. uh, will get you going a little bit, wouldn't it? I, I think at this point it might take me out if I had an energy drink because I haven't drunk, I can't even drink coffee anymore. I haven't had a cup of coffee for like five years. So I'm pretty sure that an energy drink would just, that'd be the end of me. I'd, I'd jitter my way to an early grave. Um <laughs> Um, I definitely uh, well, sleep be- for a before week. you jitter your way to an early grave, you got any yeah. predictions about what the result might be here? Man United will win because they're play they're at home and their players are probably better than West Ham's. I don't know, uh, but we've got a proper game. I mean, the fact that we are playing three claret and blue games in a row seems a little bit excessive. Two against West Ham and then Villa. 
It's like, wrong, isn't it? How have we not got Burnley immediately after that? Um, we're getting all the claret and blue out of the way, though. So uh, this is a uh, Saturday lunchtime kickoff, much to your um, uh, sadness, I guess is the is the word to use, right? That's that's not good for you. Uh, well, you know, um, I, I I cannot complain. Really, it's really none of my business <laughs> I, just, I, I decided to move to the west coast of america <laughs> yeah. i can't complain about what they're doing in england um yeah I, it's a 4 30 a.m kickoff i will wake up and watch it and then go back to sleep basically so okay you know yeah um oh, there so we play villa saturday 12 30 at old trafford um, and this is going to be an absolutely fascinating game. I think yeah. it would be... I, Villa have started the season really well. They've replaced Grealish absolutely excellently. Dean Smith is one of the better managers in the division, in my opinion. Um, they uh, they won this weekend, didn't they? Um, they they were very good, actually, in that second half. They against smashed Everton. Everton, didn't they? Yeah, it was pretty even, it was pretty even first half. And um, as you can tell, what I've been doing this weekend, watching football, (laughs) (laughs) as backers will find out shortly. Um, That's a good job. He's doing a lot of heavy lifting, ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of the podcast (laughs) as a whole. I'm so sorry. Cricket season's nearly over, but the IPL starting, it's a problem. It's a problem. I've got a problem. You do have a problem, yeah. You, you you didn't, yeah. You had a period when you were a kid where you watched a lot of cricket, and then you had a. I'd say you had, a, you know, the wilderness years, absolutely. And then you rediscovered cricket in like what the last five years or so. No, way less than that. No, three it years. Was, it went from two thousand and five Ashes. I watched Jimmy and Monty again in two thousand and nine. And then I watched the 2019 World Cup and became completely addicted. So it's literally <laughs> two years. Um, All right. Um, anyway, uh, Villa, I mean, very good in that second half. Yeah. And, you know, their, their front two, Danny Ings, really intelligent footballer, isn't he? Just, he just, I mean, like you, for, like, you forget because he had such a sort of difficult period after he... Um, yeah, I mean, he made the career mistake of going to Liverpool and then he got a broken leg um, and, you know, it, it didn't work for him there. And, and then he had to rebuild. Um, but he's, yeah, it's just really intelligent. And Watkins alongside him, just buzzy, constantly on the move. And, you know, he's 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 a very, very good player. Um, and they've been sort of, sort of been playing a 3-5-2 this season, you'd say. And Dean Smith, which is slightly, I mean, they they can play either 4 3 3 or 3 5 2, can't they? Um, but yeah, a lot of very high quality players there, and bolstered, of course, by um, Axel Tunzebi, who, um, who was, oh, you know, he won't made, play, made a, right? He, he won't play, play yeah. Made a mistake the week before, didn't he? Um, well, he didn't, sort of, he didn't really make a mistake, he just got. Sent. Roasted. Yeah, he, yeah. D- Lukaku did Lukaku things to him. He was very good against Everton, I thought, uh, which is a bonus for United. I don't know who will come into the, the side instead of him because um, he played right at the heart of that back three and was, was very good. So. I wonder if they'll play back four just because of that, maybe. Um, the, the player that I would sign first from... I mean, I think there is an argument, even though this is a bit like saying Michael Carrick should have been player of the year in the 12-13 season, when obviously everyone knows it was Robin Van Persie. There's a slight argument to say that if United had been given the chance between like the option to sign either Jack Grealish or John McGinn, the sensible thing would have been to sign John McGinn. Um, <laughs> yes. Like, he's... So it seems like a couple of games in a row against really good midfielders. I mean, the thing that worries me about this game is just the vision of what McGinn did to Chelsea's defenders. Um, because Chelsea getting away with a 3-0 win last weekend, 
that I would get away with was the absolute operative word. And I, I wonder whether yeah. we'll see United win 3-0 this game because Ronaldo will score a couple of brilliant goals and, you know, uh, someone else will chip in with one and Villa won't take their chances or whatever. But um, I mean, I'd be concerned. Yeah, it- yeah, no, I, I think there's reason for concern. This is uh, it's a good Villa side. It might be Courtney Hauser that comes into into the back three because um, he started the season, didn't he? Uh, before Tunzebi joined, um, we'll 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 uh, like the composition of that midfield will be interesting because McGinn sort of plays the. I mean, I, look, this is really reductive as a piece of analysis. He plays like kind of Scott McTominay. He's not really a defensive midfielder. Um, he's sort of, you know, the eight or the, the somewhere between six and eight and don't say seven, uh, which is his actual number. Uh, Douglas Louise played deepest against uh, um, Everton. And uh, Jacob Ramsey's a young kid, really talented um, on the ball, um, is in. Or will they bring Emi Buendia in, who's, you know, the real creative heart uh, against United and play a, a bit more on the break, um, potentially. We'll see. Either way, whatever the composition is, it's you know they've got a, they've built a very high quality squad there, you know, um, and uh, United will have to give a better performance than they have done in many of the games this season, which, you know, in truth, it's really only about a half an hour against Newcastle of a really top quality performance this season. Oh, Leeds, Leeds was Leeds, pretty Leeds great. Was, Leeds, Leeds was pretty good, yeah. But okay. that's uh, almost literally a free hit at the moment, isn't it? Playing against Leeds when you're a good team. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I find it really difficult to to predict what could happen. I, I think United's firepower is such that um, we might well see another game where, say, United go behind or someone equalises with them, but in the end, United do the business. Like, I, obviously, all possibilities are possible. United could concede early and capitulate. That's possible too, although I'd say the least likely scenario, given the kind of collective, um, they don't seem to be capitulating. Uh, unless they go down to 10 men and Solskjaer decides to surrender the game. Um, yeah. That's probably not going to happen. No, I, I imagine with it being at Old Trafford, uh, Villa will, will set up, you know, sort of back three slash five and, and try and hit United on the break. And they are very well structured to do that. Very New- well structured. Newcastle caused us all sorts of problems doing yeah. that. Um, so yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a tough. Basically, it's gonna be a tough game. I shall randomly predict uh, more than more in hope than expectation a two-one win to United. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for two-nil. Okay, is your favourite player gonna score? Uh, which one? You know. Oh, the one. Oh, um, I, I I don't. I simply do not care. That's that's the awful thing about all of this. Is I think I think I've done an hour where you'd be absolutely convinced I still like Man United. Right? That's it's pretty good. Pretty good. Like f- front that I've managed to put up for the last hour. Yeah, I think secretly you do. Um, it's 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 dirty though, isn't it? It's 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 you know there's so much um, both on and off the pitch which is dirty. And like I, you know, as, as we've said in each of our podcasts this season, we're not going to be spending hours talking about. Well, we just haven't, yeah. have we? You know, no, exactly. So anyway, I, I think United will win. I think I, I don't know what to predict about the cup game because it could be anything. But I'm going to just predict United win there as well, just because five you know. nil. 
<laughs> All right. Very good. Um, okay, so um, we've been meaning to bring this out for a little while, but um, for for those of you interested in stats and uh, data and stuff like that, I have a chat with Dan Altman from Smarter Scout coming up after this, about half an hour. And then after that, we'll be back as content. So stick with us for those two. So before we end the show this week, I've got an interview with Dan Altman from Smarter Scout. It's about half an hour. So um, if you're not interested in analytics and data and football nerdery, uh, you can skip straight to the backers content. And for those of you who love this kind of stuff, here's Dan Altman. And I started by asking him to give us a summary of what Smarter Scout is all about. Well, you know, I had been working in football for about um, five or six years and I had recently finished about two years working as the head of strategy for the ownership group that owns Swansea City and DC United and Loudoun United. And, you know, that time was a very interesting time for me. It was very educational in terms of being able to work on the inside after having worked as a consultant for several years uh, for different clubs around the world. And I got to learn a lot more about the business. I also got to see that the analytics that I had developed were really working. They, they were really kind of uh, nailing the players that we were looking at in terms of how they would go on and progress in the future seasons, uh, what their strengths and weaknesses were. Uh, The thing was that, you know, my bosses, I I felt, didn't always take those things into account. And so it was a little frustrating from that point of view. But I had sufficient faith in the numbers as a result of that time that I felt like it could be launched as a product to the broader public. And I also wanted to do that, and I wanted to make it as transparent as possible because I thought people wouldn't really trust analytics unless they knew how they worked, and I wanted to explain where all the metrics came from. So the idea was twofold. One was to really exploit the power of this product, and the other was to help people learn about what these things were so they would feel more comfortable with them and see how they could fit into an overall recruitment framework, an overall scouting framework as a complement to the traditional methods of scouting. Yeah, so Smarter Scout's extremely visual as a product. And, and uh, I imagine that's the kind of thesis you you wanted to push, um, make it simpler. Because, you know, the metrics market um, for football now, now run to hundreds of thousands of data points per match. Uh, and that didn't used to be the case. Um, but the way of extracting that and visualizing it seems to um, uh, and reduce the complexity seems to be what you're going for. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is, we're really looking for meaning. You know, uh, there are even very simple statistics like tackles per game or something like that, or shots per game, progressive passes per game, which are popular, but by themselves, to me at least, don't really mean that much. Uh, you know, you, you can talk about passes per game or tackles per game, but what does that mean if you don't know how much possession the player has had? What does that number mean in isolation if you can't compare it to the standard for that league or for another league if a player is going to transfer? And most importantly, what does that mean if it's not part of an overall model of the game where every action has a value in terms of an objective function? And, and so that's what almost all of our performance metrics are based on. You know, we have overall mathematical models of the game and we assign a value to actions based on those models. If you don't do that, you can get an idea of a player's tendencies or a player's style, and we have other metrics that do that as well. But how are you going to figure out how important those things really are? You know, you're operating in a situation of total naivete 
unless you have an overall model like that. You know, you're just based on what your feeling is about numbers rather than some objective view of what they really mean. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in, in that sense, you're following um, much of the data ops market, which uh, thinks about the data pipeline and then tries to contextualize that data for all sorts of industries. Now, um, I work in tech, uh, listeners know that and and that's sort of very familiar um but that hasn't been familiar for football as a market uh for many years um do you think um do you think this approach um or, or to put the question another way i mean is it resonating with the football clubs overall now i mean we see um some clubs say manchester city who have been very open with their sort of data approach um you know are you, are you finding a maturity in the conversations that you're having with clubs or scouts or people in the market that's changed over the years well you know there's a lot of heterogeneity in the market right now a lot of differences and you have some clubs at the very top like manchester city and liverpool who put a lot of money into analytics and they're really interested in these models and then you have clubs uh in the lower reaches who also want to dip their toe into this uh field but they don't have the money to spend on it uh, we're trying to serve both ends of the market. We're trying to give an easy, low-priced option for some of those smaller clubs to come in so they don't have to buy their own data, they don't have to hire their own analysts, or at least not a whole team of analysts, um, and they can get their feet wet that way. But you know, all, all the same, whether we're helping these smaller clubs to try something out or we're adding a sort of second opinion for the larger clubs, what we're doing is a little bit different because we have these structural models of the game. You know, there's a huge emphasis in data science right now in terms of visualization and, uh, you know, large data sets, machine learning, et cetera. All of these things which are supposed to tease out little relationships in the data, but not necessarily with an overall structural model that's based on the dynamics of the system and is robust from year to year, or in this case, season to season. And, and I just don't think that you're going to have a tool that's that useful unless you can fit it into that structural model. So we are kind of swimming against the stream a little bit in terms of where the data science field has been going. But the more I speak to people in the field, the more they are also getting a sense that, well, we can't just do a lot of data mining and, and machine learning without having some model underpinning what we're trying to interpret. And so how did you do the, that piece then, the model? What, what assumptions, I mean, uh, without giving away all your secret sauce here, what assumptions are you making um, and how is the model built and, and what, what's that based on? Well, we have two main models of the game and they're both essentially models of scoring goals because if you are familiar with functional relationships, it's very easy to create a function of results, uh, uh, you know, which is, sorry, results which are a function of goals, right? You know, if one team has more goals than the other, they win. If they're the same number of goals, then it's a draw, right? So it's very easy to make results as a function of goals. And then what we want to do is make goals as a function of something else. So there's another function that sits inside that big function. And that's what we do. We, We look at all of the actions that we can measure during the game, at least with the kind of data that we have, and we try to make those part of a function of goals. Now, there are kind of two parts to that, right? Because we have expected goals, which are our estimates of the chance of scoring based on different situations, whether it's shots or something else. And then we have the things that can make us depart from those expectations, like finishing skill or shot-stopping skill. So we try, <clears throat> right. we try 
to account for both of those things in different ways. Yeah. Um, and um, you're not collecting the raw data yourself, I assume, and because you're covering 55 markets or, or so. Um, but what you're adding on top of that raw data, which are thousands of data points per game, thousands of games and clubs, presumably, is, is, the, is the thing that you're really looking at differentiating. Yeah, exactly. I think that the raw data have become pretty commoditized overall. You know, there are a lot of companies that will offer you raw data, even with the sort of coverage that we're able to get. And uh, we are exactly doing what you said. We are trying to add value by making that data an input into an overall model of the game. Right. Um, and how do you think it's changing the game? Um, I, I remember I, I, one, one of the reasons I think about this is Thomas Tuchel, after the uh, Champions League win, said, yes, we talk about XG a lot. Um, and, you know, I, I can imagine, uh, I'm sure you've spoken to many footballers, that, um, you know, data science and um, uh, and uh, metrics are not things that are necessarily comfortable to a, a lot of footballers uh, who are used to, who are used to, um, you know, working with the ball. So, you know, is this changing how coaches think um, about developing both their teams and, and how they play? Are they working on metrics-based uh, football and, you know, in different situations where data can show that different types of actions are more successful than others? Well, I think there's increasing interest in it among coaches and players. I think it was Arsene Wenger that said recently that the players' bodies have been developed almost as much as they can be, and the next step is develop, developing the players' minds. and. Right. Some players right. are very interested in this sort of thing. Um, there was an interesting uh, piece in The Athletic not too long ago where Tom Warville, who's their data analytics specialist, sat down with Alex yep. Oxlade-Chamberlain um, at Liverpool Training and showed him a bunch of metrics about his play, including some Smarter Scout metrics. Um, and they discussed sort of how he compared to other players like Kevin De Bruyne and these metrics and what his targets were and what were the things that helped him to identify the weaknesses in his game that he wanted to improve. Um, another player, uh, <laughs> which was a bit of an irony for me, uh, Stephen Humphreys, who was a striker at Rochdale until recently, he's just moved to Wigan. Um, you know, I, I used to own a piece of Rochdale and, um, we used our analytics to help in the recruiting process. And Humphreys was one of the players we identified as having a bright future. Um, so he came to the club and actually, uh, if you follow him on Twitter, you'll see he's quite interested in metrics and things like that. He was commenting during Euro 2020 about uh, some misinterpretation of data on Cristiano Ronaldo's distance covered per game and things like that. So, uh, you know, it was interesting that a player who we'd identified with data turned out to be very interested in data. Um, but I think we see more and more of it. You know, uh, I, I, I think that the players are always interested in improving and something that helps them to do that more efficiently is always going to be an asset for them. And if the data can help them, as I said, to identify strengths and weaknesses more effectively, more quickly, then they're going to be interested. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure if it's you or it was in The Athletic as well. Um, uh, apparently, Kevin De Bruyne used uh, data and metrics as a comparative tool in his recent contract negotiations. So basically, you know, I'm simplifying, of course, but saying to Manchester City, here's how I compare against my peers in the world, therefore I'm worth X. Um, and that's a kind of another interesting aspect of this, I think. Yeah, you know, that sort of thing has happened in other sports, especially American sports, for years and years. Uh, there's a famous baseball agent named Scott Boris 
who, when he starts a negotiation, he basically drops a 300-page binder on the desk of the general manager of the team where he's negotiating and says, you know, all these stats prove that my player should get $20 million a year. Um, and there, there was another moment that I remember a hockey analyst relating a couple of years ago where, um, you know, the, the agents came in with all the data um, and it turned out that the team had a lot of the same data. And so, you know, they, they were a bit taken aback that uh, both sides had done so much homework on the player uh, before the negotiation. And so, you know, there was no information asymmetry there. They were operating on the same plane. Um, so I think we're going to start to see that more and more. Um, there are some clubs that are clearly using data to recruit to a profile. Uh, Liverpool is one. The Red Bull group is another one because when we profile their players, um, you know, they might sell a center back and then buy, buy a new one, and we see that the profile is almost identical in our data. So we, you know, we can fairly assume that they're using somewhat similar tools. Uh, and, uh, and, and finding it is the way to keep to their football philosophy. You know, they're, they're sort of holding to a very old idea using very new tools. Right, yes. And that, that um, kind of reminds me of some of the um, private equity groups that are in the game now or coming into the game and, and doing a similar thing. Um, you know, perhaps uh, they, they, you know, taking over a, a mid-sized club in France or whatever uh, and realise they have to recruit a certain type of player that can... Um, fuel their business model, maybe not at the top of the market, but being smarter with it. Um, I, I mean, um, which kind of gets me to to another question I want to ask. Really, you know, who, who your who your market is for something like this? I mean, is it clubs? Um, is it private equity groups? Both of that. You have a very low priced option for the general market as well. Um, is is this how you see your company developing? Well. We initially started out with the idea that we would serve the average fan and supporter because we wanted to make these tools accessible to as many people as possible. So that would be on one side of the scale. And then we would have a premium service for professional clients at the other side of the scale. And, and we have one little option in between. And that's more or less the way it has worked out. Um, we get large shares of revenue from both sides. Um, you know, we have a large number of people who take our sort of cheaper paid option, and we have a huge number of people who use a free option, and then we have a smaller number um, that use the professional option, and that includes a lot of clubs, it includes a lot of agencies, it includes a lot of media. Um, you know, most visibly we're with The Athletic, but you'll see if you search on Google, we appear in other media as well. Clubs, uh, you know, we keep their membership confidential, but uh, we've been involved in Dozens of leagues. Uh, we were represented in all four. In, in, sorry, four out of Europe's top five leagues last season, and we hope to be all five this season. Yeah, I, I can imagine the confidentiality piece um, with clubs is um, with is high. Um, I mean, do, do you get a sense of um, clubs that are doing this well? And and I don't expect you to start naming them. And and clubs that are doing this poorly. Uh, I you know, f- from a Manchester United perspective, we're really, a United podcast. Um, there'd been a lot of um, public-facing bragging, I'd say, about uh, the development and the analytics department there at United and uh, just how many people they'd employed to go do it. Um, and then the club turned around and recruited the best centre-back they could see in the market and the best right-back they could see in the market. Um, and it didn't seem particularly um, innovative, um, although it's been you know, 
moderately successful, I guess, to date. Um, but, you know, to, to my original point, you know, are there clearly clubs doing this well and clearly clubs doing this badly in the market? Well, I think it's difficult for clubs at the level of Manchester United because realistically in the whole world, if they're looking for a right centre back, there are probably only about 20 or 30 players that they would look at. And most of us who are involved in football could name 15 to 20 of those. <laughs> and so, yes. um, you know, there might be a few hidden gems and it's important for them to try and find those players, especially when they're very young, you know, uh, and, and this can be a very important thing for them to do. But, you know, their usage of tools like Smartest Scout might come more in terms of looking for a loan club for a player who's not quite at the level to play for Manchester United's first team yet. You know, what's, what's a club in Europe or in the championship that has a similar style where they have a gap in the squad that could be filled by this player to ensure that he got regular minutes? You know, that's something that we can definitely help them with, even if we're not necessarily going to bring them a player out of nowhere who should go right into the first team. You know, that would be very unusual if with their enormous scouting department, they weren't aware of a player like that. Um, but there are clubs that are smaller, which are really succeeding with this stuff. Um, you know, one of our biggest clients uh, just got uh, promoted this season. They're, they're, they're a big client for us, but they're not a huge club. And, um, you know, their recruitment has been very successful. It helped them to promotion. And, and uh, it's not the only club that we've had that's been promoted. And, and we think that we've been lucky to be a part of that. And your coverage goes to what age range? I mean, are clubs scouting 12-year-olds using data these days? We don't do that. Uh, we cover just senior teams. So, you know, some of those teams are in lower divisions. Um, we go all the way down to the National League in England. Um, and we have lower divisions in other countries like the second divisions in Brazil and Mexico, for example, um, as well as in Europe. Um, we go to some of the further flung first division teams as well, where teenagers can get some time. Um, you know, a player like Adam Plozek, who got a lot of attention uh, this past season and was at Euro 2020, a Czech teenager. Yep. Um, you know, we, we had spotted him a couple, couple of years ago, obviously, when he was just starting to play uh, first team, but he was still quite young. Um, however, what we can say is that some of the tools that we developed for identifying young prospects using different profiles, uh, those have been shown to be robust going back to age 16 or so, maybe even a bit younger. So there are some markers that we can look for, but the data that we use really only cover that first team action. You compare leagues and, and quality of leagues, and I, I had a similar conversation um, you know, a, a year or so ago about this one. You know, what, What's the methodology for comparing, say, the Brazilian second division with the Premier League, with the Austrian second division, with uh, the K-League? Um, and how robust has that proven to be? Well, the idea behind the way we do it is quite simple, but the execution is fairly complicated. Um, the idea is the following. There are transfers between teams every year. Players move from team to team, league to league. And if you wanted to see what the differences were between League A and League B, you could look at players who moved from League A to League B and see how their performance levels changed in different metrics. Right? That would be one way to do it. But that's not okay. all the information you have. You also have players who move from League B to League A. And so it's the same change, just in reverse, just the negative. So that's good. You get a bit more data from that. But it's not just those data either. You have some players who move from League A to League C. And from League C, there are some players who move to League B. So they've made the same journey from League A to League B, but they've taken a step in between. It doesn't have to be the same players, just 
groups of players who go A to C, C to B. Those two differences could be added together to give you the difference from A to B as well. Now that you've done that, you have an enormous number of data points. And you can see the transfer market as this enormous collection, an enormous network, so essentially with different nodes that you, where you can measure these effects. And so that's what we're doing. You know, it's almost like an exchange rate system. Um, and uh, all these markets are interconnected. Yeah, thanks. interesting. Yeah. Um, and um, I mean, w one of the things that, that clubs have, of course, is no lack of data and information, but it's the, conte the, the context behind that and, and the ability to actually, uh, as you mentioned at the top of the show, uh, provide meaning between those things. I mean, how do you see, how do you see this developing now? What, what are your plans next? Um, is there greater use of artificial intelligence here? Um, or different ways of presenting the data that can, that can uh, gain an edge for a particular client of yours? Well, we're always interested in new ways of visualizing data and, and new ways of capturing what we think is important about players. Um, you know, when, when we miss a player either by saying that he's going to be great and he turns out not to be that great or vice versa, we're always asking, you know, what, what, what was the mistake that we made? Um, and is there something that we can change to, uh, to fix that? But, you know, I've been asking those questions for seven or eight years now, so I think I've fixed a lot of things. Um, uh, and, and so I, I think what we want to do now is probably stick with most of the metrics the way we have them because our clients do care about comparability from season to season. They don't want us to change the whole system, and then, you know, it's very hard to compare a player from one season to the next. So we're probably going to stick with the metrics that we have, and it's going to be more a question of how do we make them as user-friendly as possible. In terms of the overall industry, I think there's a huge number of things going on, and I always make the same point, which is that the number of things we can do with data is growing much more quickly than the number of things we can implement within a football club. Um, so, you know, I don't think that we've done everything we can implementing sort of smarter scout style metrics within clubs. Um, there are tons of fancier, more sophisticated things we can do with AI, like you say, but you know, are those things transparent enough? Do they make a big enough difference to results on the field so that you really want to sit down and drum them into coaches and scouts' heads? Um, are the coaches and scouts going to be up for that kind of thing? You know, it's, it's, it's really, to me, the most fundamental question. And so I, I'm trying to focus on the things we can implement in ways that are easy to explain. And anything that surprises you about players sometimes and their and their performance levels that you hadn't expected um you know i i think uh just get uh, as an example um luke shaw just had a fantastic euro 2020 and a really good season with united last season but that wasn't true for the previous three or four years i'd say that surprised everybody uh do you do you find um you know, players' performance levels change, and you track that, and that surprises you. Well, sometimes it does. Um, you know, Luke Shaw is an interesting example because there were times when he had excellent seasons. You know, if you look at him at left back in 2016-17, his numbers in our metrics are actually quite similar to what he did last season. Um, okay. And so, you know, yeah, different coaches will treat players in different ways, give them different roles. But uh, we knew Luke Shaw was capable of that because we'd seen it before. Uh, so it wasn't really a big surprise. Uh, but it was great to see him you know, performing at that level, which he did throughout last season. Um, now, occasionally something does happen. You know, uh, Emmy Martinez, the uh, Villa goalkeeper, 
we looked at him last summer and said, well, you know, it doesn't look like he's going to be a world beater. His, his shot stopping looked fairly average. And that was true because to us in our metrics, it had fallen to a relatively low level and had recovered somewhat, but not that much. But that recovery continued and then accelerated through the 2020-21 season. And it got to where he had an incredible shot-stopping rating in our model. Now, we looked at that and said, you know, should, should we have seen that earlier? And if you just cut off the data at the end of last season, I think the answer is no. You know, it, it was really, at that point, the, the recovery that he had started to make could have been noise at that point. You know, it could have gone either way. It wasn't a, a clear trend for us, at least at that point. But it did turn into a clear trend uh, last season, and, and he just went from strength to strength to where we were tweeting about him saving an asteroid, you know? Um, so I, I, think, uh, I, I think sometimes, you know, it's, it's like watching a, a share price in the stock market or something, you know, it starts going up. Do you know if it's going to keep going up? Well, we don't know. You know, is it a random walk or is it the start of a trend? Um, so some, sometimes we might get something wrong for that reason, but... Uh, Overall, when we look at longer periods, I think that's where our data are really robust. Mm. Are players' careers predictable then? Well, that's what we try and do. You know, I, I mentioned earlier our, our algorithm for spotting young prospects. Um, that's not based on expected goals. It's based on a uh, model that we created by following two different cohorts of young players in their debuts in Europe's top five leagues. And um, we essentially designed rules to identify different profiles among young players and you know, we, we calibrated those rules to minimize the false positives and the false negatives. Uh, and, and we found that it, after we did that, it was quite robust. So in that sense, can we pick young players who, we th- who, who will probably go on to succeed at a higher level? I think we can. It's not foolproof. You know, we, we may still have you know, 10% errors on either side. Uh, but uh, I think that what we have certainly adds a layer of intelligence to what clubs are doing. All right. Um, to wrap up the uh, the conversation, let's focus on United a little bit. Uh, I'm kind of interested in your thoughts on, on a couple of players that uh, seem to be close. Well, one has done deal is um, Jaden Sancho. And um, I think you've tweeted a little bit about him. And then um, I was interested in reading your profile of Rafael Varane, who may or may not uh, be coming to United. It may just be part of a contract negotiation. We're all a little bit cynical when it comes to transfers. Um, thoughts on those two and what they might bring to the current United? Well, Jaden Sancho, I think, fulfills an important need for the club. Um, you know, last season we saw on the right side an attack. We saw Greenwood, who I think still is not quite at the level where he can contribute every game. Um, Marcus Rashford sometimes on that side, but really he's much stronger on the left. Dan James, also much stronger on the left, playing inverted. You know, there really wasn't a player who could supply a high level of attacking output on that right side. Uh, Jaden Sancho can do that. He can do it on either side, but but particularly on the right side. Um, he's also a player who can dribble or pass. He can be more of a creator. Um, what he isn't necessarily is a player who is going to score a ton of goals. Um, and so the question is then, well, what's the role with him alongside Bruno Fernandes. Um, you know, Bruno can be a creator or can score. Um, and I think if Sancho is also working as a creator, it gives Bruno a little more 
license to get forward and try and score himself, which if you'd seen his earlier matches with the Udinese or Sporting, you know, it's something he likes to do as well. So, um, yep. so I think it gives a little flexibility and it fills that need on the right side. In terms of Varane, you know, the right center back position is one that we've highlighted for years now for Manchester United as a potential weakness. Uh, Lindelof, the quality of his defending improved a bit this past season, but the quantity it still is a little bit slack in our numbers. And, you know, he just doesn't seem to have the same level of aggression that you might want to see at that position. Um, a more aggressive player at that position might allow Maguire more license to get forward to, which he's quite good at doing from his position. So, you know, I think there needs to be a bolder player there to act as the stopper. And um, as I said, something we've highlighted for a while, you know, Eric Bailly, uh, when he came back, he didn't really set the world alight either. Now, the thing with Varane is that while he is a high-quality defender in many respects, he is not necessarily much more aggressive. You know, he's used to playing next to Sergio Ramos, who is a very aggressive defender, um, and he was able to take more of a back seat. Uh, if you compare him to a player like Jules Koundé at, at Sevilla, I think Koundé might be a, a better pick, not just because he's quite a bit younger um, and will develop into an even better player, but because he has a lot of the same qualities as Lindelof when he's on the ball, but when he's off the ball, he's a much more aggressive defender and a very high-quality defender as well. So, you know, I think Varane might be a decent sort of temporary fix. Um, he's already 28, I believe. Um, he could give you good service for three or four years, uh, but I, I think to really make a difference in this team, we'd want a more aggressive defender. And if you can get a young one who's going to keep improving, I think that's even better. Yes, Kunde's numbers, uh, aerial numbers, are surprising given he's, uh, I think, five foot ten or something like that. Um, but but that might be part of the game today. You know, n- not a lot of teams play in a very vertical fashion in the Premier League. There's there's not a lot of aerial. Um, stuff compared to maybe 20 years ago. So maybe a player like that could flourish. Yeah, and you have Maguire. You know, uh, if, if you are defending and you're worried about the aerial game, Maguire can focus on that. And Kunde also has the mobility to do more around him. So, I, uh, you know, it's it's horses for courses, I guess. But I, I, I think that what the club really need is to find someone who can be a bit more dynamic in that role. Okay, Um Really appreciate the chat. Uh, I think um, uh, you know. I like uh, I like scrolling through Smarter Scout myself, um, nerding out. Uh, it's um, you know you present it in a way that uh, allows non data scientists to consume information um, uh, in a very simple comparative fashion, and and so um, you know I think that's added a lot to the conversation for fans. Um, we see, as I said at the top of the show, media now, uh, you know, presenting this in, um, um, you know, more consumable fashion. Tom Warville at the Athletic, who you work with a lot, does a, a great job there. Just came uh, second, I believe, in the uh, Sports Journalist Awards for data visualization this year. In a COVID year, I don't suppose he could have won. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'll be interested to look how the market develops over the coming years. So thanks a lot. Uh, great to talk to you, Dan, and uh, good luck with Smart Scout and uh, um, and the season to come. And by the way, before we leave, uh, who's your team then? Um, one of the ones you've worked for in the past, who are you particularly looking out for this season? Well, uh, even though I'm no longer a shareholder at Rochdale, I'm still going to follow them and hope that they can have some success. Um, apart from that, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to reveal the clubs that I've worked for. 
but uh, you know the club of my heart from when I was much younger is Newcastle United. So I hope they can stay in the Premier League again and maybe do a bit better than last season. Hopefully, players can stay healthy, and we'll see even more from MSM Maximo. Oh, we all love him, and uh, he's a favourite to talk about on the pod. Um, I don't know whether he'd ever um, fancy a transfer to Old Trafford, but uh, the crowd would love him for sure. Anyway, well, enjoy it. Good luck for the season with Newcastle. Then uh, maybe you'll even get a new owner at some point. Um, and um, thanks very much for joining us today. You know, it wouldn't be Newcastle if there weren't a bit of tragic comic drama. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it would be great to have a new owner for some reasons, but for others, you know, it's it's almost more fun without. Uh, anyway, thanks a lot and all the best. Thanks very much to Dan Altman for doing that. And thanks everyone for listening to the show. We will be um, back. Uh, for those of you who are not backers, uh, we will be back next week. If you are a Patreon backer, stay tuned. Um, if you want to know how to access that stuff, then patreon.com slash NQATpod. Um, while the podcast still exists, <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you can you can choose to support us if you want to and uh, get a bit of extra content where we go basically around the Premier League games every weekend, right? And uh, that's touch, right. Br- touch base, with... touch, touch on Europe as well. Um, yeah. Paul, Paul, for for the record, has been threatening to uh, quit the pod since about 2010. So no, no, you it's know. not 2010. It's, it's, all, it's all empty words, Mourinho. I, <laughs> honestly, this week I was quite close to sending you a message, being like, "How much do you actually still want to do this? Like, is there any <laughs> way that you <laughs> that we could we could call it a day?" But Nope, you still want to do it, so... D- don't, don't make me replace you with Goldbridge, Paul. Come, please, please. <laughs> hey, if he's available, <laughs> take it. The numbers, you want it. All right, thanks, everyone. All right, bye now.